Hello and welcome to the Week in Review. I'm Michael Curzon and I'm joined as ever by SD Wicket. Sam, how are you? Michael, how are you? I'm very well. I'm good. You've, you've answered my question with a question, which has stumped me in the first 10 seconds. Um, I'm joined also by Luke. Let's see if you can do this properly. Luke, how are you? Uh, I, I am fine, Curzon. So that I, I wasn't here last week. Don't worry, I was not cancelled. I was just busy over the Easter weekend at work, taking That's a much-needed break from this podcast. Well, yeah, that was the real reason. <laughs> well, no, we're glad to have you back, Luke. Um, well, I'm afraid that the well, there's a an unfortunate change of uh, tack in this week's week in review, given today's very sad news of the the passing of His Royal Highness the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, the grand old age of 99. Very sad news today that he, he, he has passed um, after a whole life, essentially, in service to the nation. Um, he won't be uh, forgotten not only for that, but also, of course, for his great humour and the support that he's given to the Queen over her years on the throne and, of course, before. Um, some people have tried already to politicise the matter. Um, there's, there's some who uh, have instantly brought over the question of... of of you know how Meghan Markle right respond as if that matters, um, and even anti-lockdowners uh, like ourselves who have sort of been critical already of the um, what the likely position might be on the the state funeral if there is one given the COVID rules. But I think for at least one day we can try and forget about politics in light of a a, a matter like this. Yeah, and he was um. Oh. You kind of know it there really he was you know he he served his country during a war he um he yeah he represented it with you know i mean he 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 seemed like he was a character who was you know prone to very uh human moments of you know humor but ultimately at the end of the day he was you know he was the queen's rock he kept her balanced during all the ups and downs of the last seventy five years he certainly lived a very long, very eventful life. He was born into the, the great royal family and fled with his mother in a basket aboard a ship. And uh, in, in World War II, he um, served this country faithfully and was um, able to win Elizabeth II's favourite and, and that of her father, the king. And he's, well, uh, he's unfortunately passed away, but he, he has been with this country and in its service and in its service and in its debt for a very long time. And he will be surely missed. Hmm. I think from the from the brief description there, he seems clearly like a man of a different age, uh, unfortunately. And I think his his uh, uh, unfortunate passing away might also mark the, the passing of an era. Um, but I think that really is as as much as we should give to that as a a, a mark of respect and a, a mention that uh, our thoughts and the the magazines. Editors fought. We've been talking to the other editors today. Are uh, with um, the family and those involved. And on that note, we'll we'll pick on to the the stories of the week. Um, and we start Luke with you this time. You you weren't with us this week, so we'll we'll throw you straight to the hounds this time. What have you got for us? Well, uh, I, I am talking about the um, AstraZeneca blood clot con controversy. Now I'm always looking at the research done into the AstraZeneca vaccine because <laughs> I have received the first dose myself. So, um, very topical for me and, and it begins with um, concerns on the European continent that the AstraZeneca vaccine was causing blood clots in um, 
well, the major European countries such as Germany and France, but all the, all the lesser ones, not to single out Denmark and Latvia, but they also um, they also cancelled use of the um, vaccines temporarily as well. No more research could be done. And the, the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, has found a possible link between the, the vaccine and very rare blood clots. And um, the science behind this is that um, when the vaccine triggers an immune system response, which why many experience symptoms of a mild illness soon after the jab. But in a, some very rare cases, this can cause complications. And the problem with the AstraZeneca one is that um, it, the, the vaccine can cause the antibodies to bind to a protein called platelet factor four, which uh, clots the blood vessels and um, leads to serious medical conditions. And um, this has tragically led to some deaths in the United Kingdom as well. But um, my take on this, and it's similar rhetoric to when we're talking about the coronavirus itself, is that, is that it's all about risk. Now, I do think it has been blown a li little bit out of proportion in other medicines like aspirin. And um, I mean, the contraceptive pill carries a similar risk of blood clots. But um, since the, the, this story has arisen, the government has recommended that an under 30s take an alternate vaccine, a bit late to tell me. But um, so yeah, it's still, it's still an unfolding story. There are still tests being done as there always are in, in the scientific world. But um, what do you ch two chaps think about all this? Yeah, well, a sign of just how, just how current and ever changing this story is, I think just a few hours before we started recording, um, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation offered no advice that um, the vaccine shouldn't only be limited for those under 30, but perhaps even for those under 40. Um, so it's, it's an ever-changing story. And I, I think the point that I'd want to pick up from what you said, Luke, about the risk of uh, potential uh, rare blood clotting being very rare, as I just said, is that this is true, and I think the risk has been overblown uh, by some countries and some media organizations. However, the risk, um, despite what Boris Johnson previously said, when he received his dose of the vaccine, he said, um, the vaccine is safe, but what isn't safe is getting COVID. Therefore, everybody should get the vaccine, i.e. it's safer to get the vaccine than to get COVID um, and not take the vaccine. For certain age groups, health experts now believe that the vaccine having the vaccine might be more dangerous than getting COVID. That's a really important story, I think. I mean, the reason for that, of course, isn't because the risk of getting these blood clots from having the vaccine is incredibly high, but it's because the risk of young people getting COVID and dying from it is so immeasurably low that it, it doesn't even bear thinking about. And therefore you have to ask, well, what's the point in getting the vaccine anyway? If there's the slightest risk of these book, uh, blood clots occurring, then there's no point to which people, of course, respond, well, it's, it's so they don't transmit the virus onto older people, to which the obvious response is twofold. Either one, the older people to whom they pass on the virus have themselves decided not to take the vaccine, in which case they have measured the pros and cons and uh, the decision was theirs and the the impact of not taking it therefore is a result of their thinking or two they have had the vaccine and it's had no impact on uh, on their likelihood of still contracting the virus and being impacted by it so whilst they have been overblown these 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 stories on the blood clot um 
impact of you know of the, of the vaccine i think it is still a very important one and and if anything demonstrates just how low risk covid is for most of the population it also um really highlights the importance of not making um vaccination coerced or mandatory because yeah you're right even if the 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 risk is is exceedingly low it can still affect you know a, a certain number of people and if if the government's you know because of the covid which is that you know one death is too many which you know arguably it is then this should be taken you know very carefully and people should first of all know what's in it and know if they if their body is likely to have a negative response to it and to it shouldn't be coerced because this sort of thing can happen and the more people take it the more given given the rate states flat the more people will be affected by this Mm. I mean, the government has changed course slightly on this. It was a course correction, was, was Jonathan Van Tam's uh, wording on this. He's the, the vaccine minister. Um, but they, they seem to be unwilling to, to go any further than is absolutely strictly necessary on the whole AstraZeneca vaccine story. So yesterday, um, Thursday, for those listening on Saturday, um, they, it was announced that people, as you said, Luke, under the age of 30 would be offered a different vaccine than AstraZeneca. Not that they would be given a different vaccine. If one isn't available, then they won't be given a different vaccine. They'll still be given the AstraZeneca. It's not that the, the vaccine has been restricted, as was initially recommended to the MHRA, the, the Medical uh, Medicines uh, Agency in Britain. Um, so it seems as though the, the government is reluctant to admit that the vaccine isn't quite as what is it gold standard and, and world beating as they originally claimed and and wants to maintain its rollout as much as possible which may also be um in in desire to try and lower fears about the vaccine because there's some reports now of people um not taking the vaccine for fear of uh, getting blood clots after hearing about the reports which i imagine is partly true i mean in, in denmark there's an interesting study where only i believe seven percent of, of Danish people wouldn't take a COVID vaccine generally. So only 7% have general fears about COVID vaccines. However, the percentage of people who wouldn't take the AstraZeneca vaccine is closer to 30%. So there are specific fears about this very specific vaccine um, rather than about the vaccine generally, which I find interesting. Yeah, the, um, on, on the continent, the, the, the repetition of AZ has taken a hit. Um... I mean, France famously sort of went back and forth over where, over um, banning it, then allowing it, then you know, kind of hoard it, and then trying to. Um, as far as the, the vaccine companies go, it's definitely the most maligned. And, and Curzon, going back to your point about risk, I have some figures from um, yesterday, so Thursday's Daily Mail. And um, so, touch of the advantages versus the risks of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, 100,000 people. So for our age group, um, healthy 20 to 29 year olds, 0.8% are, um, well, 0.8% of COVID cases lead to ICU admissions with, uh, within 16 weeks. And, um, but the risk of blood clots is a uh, 1.1 per 100,000. So for us, it is a greater risk of actually taking the vaccine then it, it is catching COVID. Precisely. I, I open my eyes to that. But again, it, as you say, it's incredibly, incredibly low numbers, um, it, it, which is, it, it amazes me when, when the government says um, the risk is being overblown, it's being overstated. 
And when we say, you know, the Europeans are only complaining about the AstraZeneca because of politics and, you know, everybody is overblowing the danger. Well, actually, fair enough. Let's let's say that that's true. It might be in some cases, might not be in other cases. But let's say, blanket terms, the the risk of taking the AstraZeneca vaccine has been overstated. But so it would have to then be admitted as the risk of dying from COVID, at least for people of younger ages, for, for which the risk is actually lower than that of the vaccine, which the government is very happy to hail as being uh, safe and effective. Um, so it, it's I think it, it demonstrates... Um, the sort of direction the government's rhetoric has taken in previous months. It's been less about, uh, you know, we, we hear this whole thing about data, not dates, yet when the data is positive, they say, oh, actually, we must stick to the dates and, and not unlock any earlier. Otherwise, there'll be a, a third wave and, and a Mary Howe will be unleashed across Britain. Is it actually the data they're interested in or is it just sticking to the sort of fear which is spread out from SAGE? I unfortunately think the latter. I mean, it's been revealed that the government was has been using fear tactics for the best part of a year yeah. to terrify people and get them to stay indoors. And I, I don't see why um, their foot would remain um, with foot. Would they tell? Don't see why they would take their foot off the brake, um, given how successful it has been. Because this campaign of terror has been very successful. Mm -hmm. and, and that. The, the the fear it generates also fuels the government to go further and further. So you know. They aren't going to. They aren't going to throw away the meal ticket, are they? No, and and of course the problem there is that it's the, the the public has been very receptive to the propaganda which has been pumping out the fear. Um, so that when the government does say let's try and ease back, or when people say oh we want our freedoms back, a large proportion of the public, maybe even the majority, um, says in response no we must stay down longer otherwise we'll be suffering as i say a third wave and we need to clamp down on the people who uh, dare to still be hosting weddings and those terrible people who are allowing more than you know 10 uh, members of the family to go to a funeral as though these people are some great sinners um i mean one of the the latest tools of the government there's a there's talk of a a, a poster campaign in which especially those who'd received the second dose of the vaccine of which there are now six million in britain um, were told not to hug their grandchildren, otherwise they would risk uh, infecting them. Um, and and we've seen the the adverts on the TV recently. I saw one a few nights ago, and it seemed almost like a spoof. Um, so I messed up one. Yeah, but yeah. the one the ones where there's a group of people outside, and uh, and a woman says, "Oh, it's it's in her head." She's saying, "It's so great to be back with everyone. Wouldn't it be nice to go inside and be warm?" Oh, but no, we could all catch COVID in there. And you think, oh, for goodness sake, no one thinks this. It's nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people are fed up with it now, actually, and especially with the, the pubs coming back next week, the, the whole idea of, of sitting outside constantly. I was, I was watching a report of a, a publican in the Midlands uh, a couple of nights ago who was being you know, shown around outside saying, yeah, this, is the, this is the new marquee I've got set up. This is where, the, where people will be drinking. This is where they order. It was absolutely thrashing it down with rain. Uh, it looked miserable. I wouldn't want to go there. I don't know anybody that would want to go there. I'd rather sit in the comfort of my own home and invite friends around there. Um, yeah, but also, also you have to jump through red tape hoops to get um, into the place in the first place. You, you, you now have to hand over your phone at the moment, I think too many people are going to say, 
screw that. I'm not, I, I, I'm not gonna put up with that to sit in the cold and drink beer. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness beer in Britain is warm. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, moving on anyway, onto the the last story of this week. Maybe a, a slightly abridged uh, episode this week, I think, but um, I'm sure nobody will will uh, be be too cross about that. Um, now, this isn't the, the story itself isn't really news. It's something which has been going on, uh, oh, I suppose for decades, really, uh, is about Boris Johnson's, uh, how should we put it, rather extravagant private life um, and not a, very, uh, not a very conservative one at the very least. Um, but what has been interesting, I think, in recent weeks and worthy of talking about is that following the latest um, gossip, essentially, I, I don't know who it is, some of a woman who took a picture in his kitchen after an affair when his, his wife at the time was away uh, whilst he was the mayor um, all these allegations were coming out of new gossip and rumours and whatever um, but anyway what I found interesting was the, the response from a number of uh, our remaining uh, and I put it tentatively right wing and conservative outlets and commentators so that the Sunday Times put out a piece by uh, by Rod Liddle which he said, oh, I don't care, you know, about all this sort of stuff. Let it be. It doesn't matter. It's, it's none of our business. Um, all that matters is whether or not money was involved with it, fair enough. Um, Unheard also read, uh, led with a piece. I can't remember who wrote it, but I don't suppose it matters. The publication thought it worthy of publication in which the, the argument essentially was, well, other prime ministers have been far less moral than this one, so it doesn't matter. You know, this person was being worse at this time and that person... Uh, had an even worse record. If, if you want to find the specific pieces, I did did actually write about them on uh, Bournebrook Live last week. Um, so you, you can find them there if you're interested. But the point is, and the question I'll ask you both now, are there any Conservatives who would still argue that morality matters? None with a public platform, no. Hmm. None elected to office. Yeah. None, I say Conservatives, small c. <laughs> None in Parliament, none on the BBC. No, or or even in the you know the, the Telegraph, which <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, when I was writing about this, I thought you, you know we, we all talk about the male sidebar of shame, where you try and read about the, the latest you know conservative uh, take on something and a stab in the eyes by some tat on the side about you know this celebrity uh, wearing a bikini in this place or that place, whatever. Um, but the main papers are just as obsessed with it, where you've got, you know, the Telegraph, especially on its Instagram page, say, always is leading stories about, you know, I developed my sex life in my mid-40s, and you can too. The stuff that used to be reserved for some CD magazines picked up by strange old men, um, now uh, main consumption of the, I suppose, the liberal elite. Um, and I think the reason, at the very least, that a conservative should say that something like this matters regarding what Boris Johnson has done, is that if nothing else, it's revealing of his mindset, um, that being anti-conservative. Uh, I think it's important in the same way that it's worth pointing out that Boris Johnson's talk on patriotism is nonsense, that he tells us to buy British, but at the same time um, has, has done nothing to turn back a contract signed under Theresa May, which makes the, the blue uh, passport a sign of our regained sovereignty um, made in a Polish factory owned by a French company. Um, so I think it's important in that sense uh, that it's, 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 it's revealing of the fact that whatever this man is, he's not a conservative. 
he's just a, a an inner city member of the the liberal elite yes and so are the tabloids Mm, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 point of the story was to embarrass Boris Johnson, right? To you know, to put egg on its face, not to ask serious questions of the moral character of the man in charge of the British government. Mm. It seems like that's the only point of the, the media these days. It's slam dunks uh, headlines to to gain a few quid rather than to to properly question. I mean, we've seen that over the lockdown as well, where there's been very little in the way of. Uh, honest criticism or even just digging down into the facts and the statistics um, but more either spinning what the government has said or brandishing headlines like lockdown wasn't soon enough um, which all seems just to be a selling point in a way we we kind of as a, as a society we kind of ask for this you know, as the comedian uh, Andrew Schultz says you know we demand to be entertained every day for free so I mean this is kind of what we get, really. You know, we, we, we created a circus of politics and now the clowns here. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the important thing on the whole Boris story is that it's more than anything, it's a reflection on how society has changed. The fact that he, you know, that there shouldn't be legal limits on who should or shouldn't be able to become prime minister in that sense, otherwise you get into all sorts of murky questions. Um, but I don't think that if you know a public of a hundred years ago had known what uh, a leader had done and this had been anything like what Boris had done, uh, that they would have accepted his becoming prime minister, sort of the the, the standard bearer of what it is to be a respectable person. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and scandals of a, of a moral nature have derailed the, the careers of many politicians in the past. I think of the perfume affair. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote this actually my my dissertation on the Conservative Party. I started a chapter on the family with this, as as Johnson had just been elected. I said, you know, go back half a century and uh, a scandal which is sort of minimal compared to the size of uh, what happens in the private lives of the politicians today, um, absolutely rocked the government, led to the party not being elected the next time, and created a whole level of of public distrust in politicians. Um, uh, compare that to the point in which a man who, when he was elected, the papers couldn't even say how many children he had. They didn't know. They'd say, you know, in the same way that the government marks the next uh, steps on the roadmap by saying it'll be May 12th at the earliest. The papers had to say he has six children at the least. You know, <laughs> they had no <laughs> idea, really. Um, and a man who uh, proposed to uh, his soon-to-be wife while still in, uh, married to another woman before the divorce papers had actually been filed. Um, the first Prime Minister also to enter uh, Parliament with a woman to whom he wasn't married, which is um, uh, whether you've note in terms of social history. These things just wouldn't have been accepted before, but I think they're part of the course of, of what is now deemed as being socially acceptable. That's just how con conservatism or how political conservatism as that the wider public contemporary discourse knows it today is that um, because conservatives have been on the back burner for so long they've had to sort of co-opt the, um, the social liberalism of society including adopting the sex revolution which Johnson embodies to the full. Not, not just the social liberalism too but it, you know it kind of had to... Yes, it affects every facet of policy. The Conservatives have fallen. You know, it, it's a party that had to hoover up the um, 
economic liberalism of the Liberal Party after they collapsed in the interwar period. Um, so, you know, like, go, go back to the turn of the last century. I mean, the, the, it, w it wasn't the, you know, the neoliberal business first, they'll take, they'll take, take the hindmost party it is now. It's a party in complete decay that has strayed so far from the Conservative path that it almost deserves Boris Johnson at the helm of it. Because you know, it, it's, it's like a dunce cap in human form. Yeah. Not, not when he gets his hair cut come the 12th. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a different matter entirely. If, if they're allowed to open at that point. Well, they will be now, won't watch they? Him, watch him go into that barbershop on, on April 12th for a photo op with like three masks and a visor and a hazmat suit. <laughs> and that's the new normal. Yeah. <laughs> there you are. Well, I think that that's also run its course. Um, a question worth bearing in mind. Look out if you can for those who do um, even just question uh, the sort of moral uh, behaviour of Conservative Party members now. Uh, but I think in the main, it's a topic which um, just isn't broached by Conservatives. Even those who are Conservative, I think, genuine, genuinely socially Conservative, have given up because there's nothing that can be done. Society has changed to such an extent that uh, pointing out someone's moral failures, not just to say that they're failed beings, as we all are, but simply as a, an indication of the fact that they, their thinking when it comes to other matters uh, will not be conservative. Um, try and find those people. It's almost like conservatives who succeed within the current system make a Faustian impact upon their ascension to the, you know, the, the nucleus of government. And they, they ceremoniously strip away their conservatism and adopt the the monolithic worldview of the establishment. Well, they, they become the in crowd then. They don't want to burn their bridges. Mm. Well, there's an interesting comparison there to, to Boris Johnson as a columnist, uh, to Boris Johnson as a prime minister. Um, someone pulled up a funny quote from not even that long ago about ID cards where Boris said, if someone ever asked me to present an ID card, I'll pull it out and eat it in front of them because I will not show myself to the state. And now is demanding that we have a vaccine passport to go to a pub. Well, that's quite a change. Mm. Well, I mean, he, he is the modern politician, which is, you know, a, a, like water. It just adapts whatever it's in, in, involved with. I mean, you know, if, if, the, if the establishment was truly conservative, he would be echoing that as well. Mm. There we are. Mm. Uh, well, Sam, we'll, we'll move back to you um since you have a couple of other topics you wanted to 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 briefly mention namely on the relationship between uh ukraine and russia what have you got to say on this well uh, not just that uh taiwan and china as well well there are two stories that have that have um still developing so we'll we'll keep our comments to them uh limited but um something to keep keep an eye on over the next couple of weeks uh the first is that um russia appears to be remilitarizing the uh border with Ukraine. Um, the US said that it is you know, increasingly concerned. Um, as well, uh, China has begun uh, making incursions into Taiwanese airspace. Um, they've made it very clear um, over the last few years that they don't recognize Taiwan to them as part of China. Um, and the, the Taiwanese said that they'll, they'll, they'll fight to the end. And so we can look at those stories, but also we can we have to kind of ask ourselves that if this does go you know, where we fear that it will, what can the US do about it? You know, um, the US militarily, culturally is, you know, at its weakest for decades. 
um, and compared to a country like Russia or China, which, you know, while being duplicitous and morally bankrupt, they are very successful nations in the, in the Machiavellian sense. Mm. Well, you two tell me what stories you're covering very, very late, and I've, I've been at work all day with no time to research this, but what I will say on Taiwan is that if China flexes its muscles and punches into the South China Sea, Taiwan is touched. I don't think the US will put up a stiff resistance. They, they won't be sending aircraft carriers across the Pacific. Well, well, that's the thing, is that, I, yeah, the, U, the US at this point is, is not prepared for, for something like that to happen. And it's, it's like um, the, the uh, comedian Bill Maher did the, the monologue about it recently where, you know, while the US is squabbling over, you know, culture war nonsense, like, you know, pronouns and, and you know, how, how white the Grammys are, China is building an absolutely formidable force in, in the East. Yeah, so Ch Ch China is a serious country. And it's, very, it's a very yeah. serious country, yeah. It is very serious. It, it builds skyscrapers in days. It, yeah, it, it is it, amazing it, what they it, do. <laughs> it is building infrastructure in, in Africa to, to quarry favour. It is, it is making a lot of moves geopolitically that the US is either somehow unaware of or just, just can't be bothered to, to tackle. Yeah. I mean, well, we've talked about China a lot in, on the show, and it's just the, the growing power of, of the 21st century. I mean, it, it will be a, a superpower within 10 years if it isn't already. And um, like, like the US did in the 20th century, it will completely dominate geo the geopolitical world. And then possibly like the US, then collapse in on its own weight. Yeah, it'll invade Afghanistan. That'd be too much for it. <laughs> right, well, I think on that bombshell, uh, perhaps the wrong use of word, we'll, <laughs> we'll end this week's in review and we'll reflect on the, 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 uh, the latest developments in the, the next upcoming war. Uh, in next week's episode and uh, thanks again all for listening thanks for joining us again this week and we hope that you're you're listening to our next episode next week as well thanks very much cheers <laughs>